This is Christine Murray, and this is the Developer Podcast, where we talk about the spaces between the buildings. As we near the end of an interesting year, I'm testing out a new format this week. As editor-in-chief, I want to share with you my favorite articles and read them out so that you can enjoy them away from the screen. Maybe you're doing something you feel you need to do, like cooking or taking a walk. Uh, Maybe it's a fake commute to your local coffee shop. Uh, But maybe you could take about 25 minutes to to listen to this. I think you'll really enjoy it. This week, I'm sharing an excellent piece by Steve Taylor on how changes to the way we work will change the city centre. As we head towards the new year, the confusion, speculation, and debate about how and where we will be working in 2021 shows no sign of abating. Will we zoom our way through, waiting for remote working to progressively abate once the vaccine is rolled out? Or has work changed for good? Is anyone really up to returning to piling onto a crowded train and tube for 59 minutes a day or 221 hours a year? the average UK commute in 2018? Will the office become a redundant form of commercial property? Or will it be rebooted in a new guise? Is the city and the city of London in the throe of a fundamental restructuring? Will anyone that can work remotely and can afford to swap the city for a more genial lifestyle in greener suburbs, smaller towns, or their once second, now first home in the countryside or the south of France. Like many of the multiple varieties of chronic uncertainty currently afflicting the UK, confusion about the evolution of work and the workplace, its impact on commercial real estate, and the consequences for the future of our cities has been significantly exacerbated by mixed messages from UK government. At the end of August, the Prime Minister Boris Johnson urged everyone to get back to work, only to rescind it with an instruction to work from home less than a month later. In fact, at the time of Johnson's initial intervention, most office workers already were at work, having continued throughout the long first lockdown to perform their daily tasks from home, thanks to laptops, smartphones, Wi-Fi, 4G mobile networks, and an expanding array of connectivity and teamworking tools. Around 60% of managers, directors, professionals, technical and administrative workers spent August 2020 working from home, including bosses, managers, and CEOs, many of whom would have recited, if asked in January or February, a litany of reasons why most of their people could not work remotely. In mid-June, exclusive remote working hit an all-time high of 38%, a huge leap from just 5% a year earlier, according to the ONS. Late August, the Harvard Business Review published the results of a survey into the productivity of knowledge workers, anyone whose job involves handling or using information. Replicating a study that the publication had done in 2013, it enabled comparisons between working in the office and at home, concluding that knowledge workers were overall more productive when working from home. In the study, time formerly spent in big meetings had been mostly redirected towards customers and external partners. The number of tasks rated as tiresome had actually dropped from 27% to 12%. The actual amount of desk-based work was almost identical at 33.4% in 2013 
and 34% in 2020, while managing up, reporting to superiors, had fallen by two-thirds. Managing across, dealing with colleagues, was down by a third. Training and development increased sixfold. Working remotely, it turned out, was more focused, customer-oriented, and supportive of individual professional development, whilst being less performative, hierarchical, and boring. Another recent report authored by economist Matt Clancy for the Entrepreneurs Network, a London-based think tank focused on entrepreneurial innovation, reaches similar conclusions. The case for remote work and an accompanying virtual conversation between Clancy, Ogilvy Vice Chairman Rory Sutherland, and Adam Ozimek, Chief Economist at freelance talent site Upwork, highlight the rarely acknowledged productivity-sapping aspects of shared workspace. We don't measure the negative overspill effects of agglomeration or the negative externalities within the office. Interruptions, distractions, meetings, writes Ozimek. Those costs are real and they reduce productivity. Ozimek also challenges remote working supposed lack of serendipitous interactions. The supposed benefits of clustering together to help workers exchange ideas and enjoy knowledge spillovers have shrunk and may even be gone in many cases. If true, it pulls the rug out from under a popular rationale for office work, as does Sutherland in his account of brainstorming virtually with a client in Japan. Ideation works really well, he said. Even if we accept the argument that some types of office work depend on face-to-face interactions, there's nothing to say that they need to happen in the center of big cities. The pandemic has brought to the fore the push and pull between centripetal and centrifugal forces in urban morphology, exposing commuting as one of the main factors in the shifting balance between the two. Daily travel to work in and out of London takes an average of 80 minutes a day pre-pandemic, and it's been problematic for decades. Lockdown freed many office workers from that repetitive grind, and they're in no hurry to return to it. The Greater London Authority estimates that around one-third of Londoners have been furloughed, lost their jobs, or had their working hours reduced because of the crisis, though with predictably wide variation between industry sectors. The sectors that employ the highest share of London's workers, and in which the vast majority of businesses had continued to trade, represent 32% of the city's employees. Workers in these sectors are least likely to have lost their jobs, and most likely to have been working from home. Contrastingly, in the accommodation and food service activities sector, which employs 8% of working Londoners, only 19% have continued to trade. Projected forward, that could result in a 31% reduction in its size relative to 2019. That's 135,700 job losses alongside 50,000 in manufacturing and construction, 90,000 in local government, education, health, arts, and recreation. The office sectors, despite their inherent adaptability, will not be spared. They are projected to decline by 13%, 195,000 job losses. Commercial real estate in the capital faces the impact from almost 200,000 people in businesses based in offices losing their jobs, while those that remain will be working from home 
at the very least a third of that time, hammering London's economy in direct proportion to its over-reliance on an office-based industry and the services that support them. The commercial property sector is mostly bullish about the effects of these trends on its business prospects, though it's not always easy to distinguish reasoned estimations of future demand from boosterism and PR. The property management platform released reported that only around half of commercial rents for the third quarter had been paid by early July, a situation characterized by its CEO as a sign of the capital's resilience. It requires some mental gymnastics to see a business sector that is not even collecting 50% of its revenues as evidencing resilience. The estate agent Savills forecast that 7.2% of office space in the City of London will be empty next year, the highest level since 2008. In one possible harbinger of the future of the large city centre corporate office, BP is selling its HQ on St. James Square, a consequence of moving to what it calls a more hybrid work style. The financial upside of reducing the office footprint was highlighted in a March 2020 survey of financial company leaders by the health and safety consultants Aronite. Even a small reduction in space of 5% could produce financial savings of £150,000 a year for an average-sized SME based in central London, a huge amount of cash liberated for salaries, technology or R&D. The incentive to downsize in London is exceptional. Reducing the office footprint in the next most expensive European city, Paris, brings in only half the savings. All this begs the question, what exactly is the office for? There is a broadly agreed shortlist of activities that work better in a shared environment, including training, induction, culture building, socials, team working sessions, individual pods for people who cannot or do not want to work from home, and acoustically protected spaces for virtual meetings and workshops. Google CEO Sundar Pichai describes the repurposed office as a place for on-sites, flipping the corporate ritual of the off-site to one in which employees gather in a central workspace to escape the confines of their neighborhood, families, housemates, inadequate home working spaces, and the blurring of professional and personal time. Alternatively, the office could come to them. Government-mandated restrictions on movement and personally calibrated reluctance to travel have led since March to a sharp refocusing on the city neighbourhood, most visibly and influentially in the concept of the 15-minute city, developed by Sorbonne professor Carlos Moreno and enthusiastically embraced by the recently re-elected socialist mayor of Paris, Anne Hidalgo. The 15-minute neighbourhood is one in which hyper-proximity to the essentials of urban life, housing, work, recreation, services, shops, are reachable within a quarter hour's walking or cycling. The idea shares similarities with Barcelona's superblocks or superrilas, mini-neighbourhoods around which traffic will flow and in which spaces will be repurposed to fill our city with life, five of which have been built since it was first established in 2016. Salvador Rueda, head of Barcelona's Urban Ecology Agency, envisages 70% of the city's street space eventually being car-free. 
On his personal website, Paris's Marino acknowledges that work is more problematic because people's jobs are often some way from their homes, adding that our approach to work is the same as it has been for the last 50 years. Is it always necessary to show up somewhere? To be physically present in front of the boss, Marino says? One answer is to transfer downtown to the suburbs, as has happened in Homdale, New Jersey, where Aero Saarinen's quarter-mile-long late 1950s Bell Labs building has been refurbished and repurposed into Bell Works. In an awkward neologism, the developers have christened it a metroburb, an urban hub, a little metropolis in suburbia. A large-scale mixed-use building with great access, office, retail, entertainment, hospitality, residential, health, wellness, fitness, everything you would find in a metropolis, but in a great suburban location. More prosaically, workspace providers such as WeWork and International Workplace Group and their brands, Regis and Spaces, are shifting their attention to suburban locations or donuts around the central core. It's a pivot into the suburbs and the rings around London, Birmingham, and Manchester, Mark Dixon, International Workplace Group Chief Executive, told The Guardian. WeWork is reported to be slashing its commitments in shortage and has abandoned its plans to lease the hyphen in Manchester as they seek to exit 66 properties around the world and renegotiate leases on 150 other buildings after burning through £1.7 billion of cash since the beginning of the year. Big businesses with sufficient scale and a legacy of suburban and smaller town premises, including Virgin Money, Metro Bank, and Lloyds are converting their branches into distributed workspace for staff who formerly commuted into central head offices. Deloitte has announced it will close its Liverpool office in favour of remote working and is downsizing its Manchester office into two floors of a WeWork space in the Hanover building. This centrifugal movement outwards from urban centres has the potential to spark a new lease of life for shuttered retail premises and shopping malls. In a similar move, Covine, a U.S. developer of Flex co-working space, have taken the much-touted model of the future office as a hotel and implemented it in substantial ex-retail spaces. Now active in the U.K., they plan to buy up former department stores, offering flexible space and terms to businesses that see long leases as unviable. Unibail Rodamco Westfield, owners of the upmarket Westfield shopping centres, have secured planning permission to turn the House of Fraser on their West London site into flexible workspace. As offices migrate away from downtown, the people who formerly worked in them are subject to a double movement. Some are being lured into the city by falling rents and the possibility of walking or cycling to their workspace when they don't need to be physically present. Others are taking advantage of remote working by relocating to places where they can enjoy more congenial lifestyles whilst being close to like-minded colleagues and contacts. Proximity to other people is the driver once again, Yolanda Barnes from the Bartlett Real Estate Institute at UCL observed in her talk at the Festival of Place on the future of real estate. In this stage of urban evolution, Barnes calls the digital city. Being close to materials, markets, or finance no longer determines where people need to live. Physical proximity to other people, though, quote, is the one thing you can't get on the screen. 
However, Barnes is adamant that this cannot be interpreted as another wave of what has previously been characterized as suburbanization. She says, very often what people are fleeing to are alternative smaller neighborhoods, towns, and alternative cities. In other words, they are still living in urban centers. Where people do remain in a large city, they're much more attached to a particular neighborhood. Barnes adds, describing this trend as, quote, a new localism. The result of this urban dispersal, though, are far from neutral from a socioeconomic perspective. This summer, the London Assembly Housing Committee surveyed Londoners' housing situations and attitudes in response to the pandemic, publishing the results in late August. A third wanted to move home, half of those to somewhere outside of the city. The chair of the housing committee, Murad Qureshi, commented, if this exodus from London materializes, this could have a huge impact on the city, the economy, and the housing market. Projections that the capital's population will continue growing to over 10 million by 2036 look as if they contradict short-term demographics. But that growth has been uneven for decades, with outer boroughs expanding faster than inner ones, whilst becoming poorer. There are mixed signs and opinions as to whether an outward shift of work and the spaces in which it happens could change this. Some economic and urban geographers predict that the continued centripetal movement of young educated workers into inner city neighborhoods and label this trend youthification. In their paper, Cities in a Post-COVID World, a trio of leading urban-focused academics, Richard Florida, Andres Rodriguez, Pose, and Michael Storper, state that young people are drawn to cities for the combination of economic opportunity, thick labor market, thick mating, and friendship markets, and related amenities they provide. They're likely to continue to come to cities. Despite thick mating markets and other attractors, city rents tell a different story. Zoopla's rental market report shows a drop in rents in Edinburgh, Manchester, Birmingham, Reading, Coventry, and Aberdeen. In central London, rents are plummeting in precisely those areas where young professionals might want to live. For reasons best known to himself, journalist and translator Daniel Ferry Jones posts a continuous stream of screenshots from the Rightmove property portal to his Twitter account, tracking discounted rents for central London apartments. At the time of writing, the rent being asked for a two to three bedroom King's Cross flat has been slashed by 39% to £1,300 a month. Another in London Bridge is down 38%, one in Pimlico by 33%. The more central the accommodation, the higher the discount, a trend exacerbated by a freefall in Airbnb bookings. Despite this, some young adults apparently prefer to keep working from home in outer zones, maybe saving their rent to eventually buy a property. The City of London Corporation, the municipal governing body for the square mile of the capital's financial district, seems well aware of a potential hollowing out of the city's downtown, launching an unprecedented five-year plan to, quote, reinvent itself by attracting artists and small businesses to replace the people and capital leaving the city. In the brief summer interregnum, when British workers were being urged back into the office, some city bosses expressed exasperation at their star traders' refusal to return to the office, lending weight to the corporation's fears. 
The launch of the city's new plan came just a week after the governor of the Bank of France revealed that UK assets of £150 billion out of an estimated total of £1.2 trillion that will leave the capital were moving to our European neighbour ahead of the completion of the Brexit transition period. In the same week, the House of Lords issued a report warning of a catastrophic threat to Britain's £225 billion professional service industry from leaving the EU. While present-day London does share some of the factors that drove the urban exodus from US cities, like Detroit, such as an over-reliance on a single industry, capital flight, a failure to repurpose downtown buildings such as unsold luxury flats and the squeezing out of its middle classes. The parallels stop there. Although some white-collar workers are relocating further afield, many are moving outward within the city. What seems more plausible than an urban exodus is profoundly ironic Europeanization of downtown London a combination of the kind of reverse gentrification planned for the city, with falling rents and a significant reduction in demand for office space opening up the possibility of mixed-use central neighbourhoods where people are able to live, work, make art and enjoy leisure the way they can in central districts within Berlin, Vienna or Barcelona. The social composition of London may be fundamentally altered, with more middle-class families moving to re-energized suburbs and peripheral neighborhoods, working in a hybrid style between home, local hubs, and sporadic visits to the central office. Younger singles and couples, along with well-off retirees, may migrate in the opposite direction, into revitalized city center areas. There, apartment buildings rub shoulders with downsized and repurposed offices, smaller businesses, and the new generation of clean, quiet, urban industries, collectively creating demand for innovative building typologies like the New London Mix, proposed in Places That Work, a report by Zero Zero Architects Dan Hill and GVA. Such developments, long speculated upon by urbanists, might have recently become more likely, but they run the risk of replicating or even exacerbating the city's pattern of polarized inequality, primarily because of the grievous and unsolved issue of housing supply. Families moving outwards will tend to be those in which the adults are more able to work remotely, leveraging their relatively higher income to get more outdoor and domestic space, including perhaps a home office, in a more desirable suburb and raising house prices in the process. In a city with an inadequate supply of genuinely affordable housing, this will have the effect of concentrating lower paid workers into already left behind suburbs or pushing them out beyond the city, lengthening commutes, increasing health risks and eating into already scarce non-work time. The Financial Times doesn't mince its words. Quote, the new poor will leave big cities. This is the exodus that could reshape urban life in the coming years. Traditionally, European elites fled the city when plague struck. 2020 has been no different, most pointedly when a clutch of UK business tycoons and media figures lectured British workers on their duty to return to the workplace, zooming in from overseas vacation properties, or in one particularly egregious example, from their yacht off the coast of Sardinia. Parisian novelist Leila Slimani was widely criticised for publishing a gushing account of her lockdown idyll in her second home in the French countryside. 
Former Spanish Prime Minister José María Aznar escaped contagion-ridden Madrid to hole up in his Marbella villa. Then, as now, those with means avoided the city until the immediate danger had subsided. Pandemic-induced migrations are turning out to be more complex, more nuanced. The poor leave. The middle classes move to leafy suburbs, and central neighbourhoods are filled with young adults, artists, entrepreneurs, and sprightly boomers. That constitutes a different city. But is it different in ways that really matter? Reshuffling urban demographics without radically transforming housing from an asset class to a Vienna-like commitment to housing as a basic human right will do little to stem ever-rising levels of urban poverty in England, Wales, and Scotland. Berlin began a five-year rent freeze last summer. Barcelona's mayor is a former housing activist who recently gave property groups owning 200 empty city centre flats a month's notice to either let them to tenants or forfeit them to the city for half their market value. In Vienna, the 60% of residents who live in social housing have their rents capped at no more than 25% of their household income. The alarming increase in levels of child poverty in Birmingham, Middlesbrough and Newcastle-upon-Tyne are attributed to rising housing costs, according to analysis by Loughborough University's Centre for Research and Social Policy. The analysis also showed the highest rates of child poverty, affecting one in two children, are in the London borough of Tower Hamlets and Newham, Olympic legacy locations, which have seen record growth in house prices. Downtown, if we do get to enjoy a future of car-free streets, outdoor cafes and restaurants, gently invigorating walks to our part-time workplaces and weekend family bike rides, that comfortable post-pandemic urban lifestyle will likely come at the expense of many others who have an equal right to the city. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what we do, please support us on Patreon. You'll find it at patreon.com slash thedeveloperuk. 